as a result of his sin, David must now face the repercussions of his actions, beginning with the death of his newborn son. This is the 24th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel in chapter 12. 2 Samuel in chapter 12, the first 25 verses, verses 1 through 25. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. 2 Samuel in chapter 12, 1 through 25. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich, and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock, of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah, and if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore, hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight, that was killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and has taken his wife to be thy wife and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. How be it? Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not. Neither did he eat bread with them. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto David, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. 
Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house and when he required, they set bread before him and he did eat. Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God would be gracious unto me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Wherefore shall I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bare a son and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet. And he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. The Apostle Paul writing by the same spirit that moved the prophet to write in Second Samuel. Writing to the church at Rome, Romans in chapter 6. One verse only, verse 23. By inspiration of God, Paul says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day, even in the face of very sorrowful circumstances. Now until Nathan exposed and reproved David, David thought that he had gotten away with his sin. However, even while David thought he had gotten away with his sin, God was already planning to lower the hammer upon him through the prophet Nathan. But what is so sorrowful about this situation, even in addition to the fact that David sins with with Bathsheba, conspires using Joab and the children of Ammon to kill that righteous man, Uriah the Hittite. What is so sorrowful about this situation is that David would not have confessed. It doesn't seem as if David would have confessed his transgression unless it was exposed by God. It seems to be a testimony of his attitude toward his position as king. In other words, if he could do whatever he wanted... He would do it because he was the king as a result of God's original grace upon him. He thought that he could do whatever he wanted. It seemed as if David really believed that his sin could be washed away and forgotten without his owning it. Without his owning it, without his confessing it, and without his suffering the consequences for it. Solomon reminds us that just because there are no immediate consequences for a transgression... That doesn't mean that there will never be any consequences for that transgression. Notice what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11. He says, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. David was continuing to think that all was well. He could do all these things and, and just skate. And God would turn a blind eye. He believed that since he was a saved individual, he was exempt from God's heavy hand of retribution. And that's often the problem with many of us who who think that just because we're God's children, we're above the law, and that God will not bring his hammer upon us when we sin. 
this failure to openly and willingly confess his sin also tells us something about David's attitude. He had willingly, by this point, he had willingly hardened his heart as to his sin, thinking that he could hide it from God and that he could even hide it from the nation of Israel. And yet, as we've seen, you cannot hide from God. And this is what I tell the young people all the time. You cannot hide from God. You can do it in secret. Mommy and daddy can't see you, but you cannot hide from God. And David thought he could hide from God. He thought if no one found out, if he could just keep it hushed for, for, for a season, long enough, it would just go away all by itself. And he would get away with his crime. And that's what, what it was. And It was a crime. It wasn't just a sin. It was a crime. As a result, he thought everything would be well. He might have even believed that God had simply allowed him to get away with his wicked deed and that there would be no repercussions. Maybe he thought, well, the time has gone by and maybe God is going to be merciful to me and I'm not going to have to bear up with any consequences. But what he finally had to realize, what he had to come to terms with, is that everything could never be well unless it was exposed, sorrowed after, and repented of. God was not going to turn a blind eye because this was a wicked act of rebellion and lawlessness. And so according to the mercy of God, and I say that very precisely, according to the mercy of God, David is fully exposed. In other words, in the mercy of God, and that's what this is exactly all about, Nathan's coming to David was a mercy. David might have thought for a moment, this is a horrible thing, I'm being exposed. But no, 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 this was a mercy. David's sin is exposed in order for there to be a complete healing. In order for there to be a complete restitution. In order for him to now feel once again the presence of God in his life which was lost. Without David's sin being exposed, there could be no healing and therefore there can be no justice. Now this exposure was absolutely necessary in order for there to be any forgiveness. The plain fact of the matter, however, is that though there is forgiveness, and that's what David was given, he was given forgiveness. And yet, he still had to bear up with the consequences. So even though there's forgiveness with God, there are often consequences. You see, David wanted his sin hidden because he didn't want to pay the price for his disobedience. He did not want the consequences he failed to understand that there were consequences and he didn't want the consequences. And that too was sin. He didn't want to man up to his sin. He didn't want to man up to his crime. Now, depending upon the nature of the sin, consequences will result. All consequences will fit the transgression. And if we look at David's transgression, it was very great. In David's case, his sin was an assault upon the family of Uriah the Hittite. It was a violation of David's oath as king. And by violating the covenant marriage oath of Uriah and Bathsheba and violating his own covenant oath with his own family, with his own wives, David assaulted the integrity of both the marriage institution itself and the generational hope that might have come from the marriage between Bathsheba and Uriah. He was a family destroyer. The one thing that God had as something that was sacred, he was destroying it. David then, if that wasn't enough, 
David then adds murder to his list of sins, which is also an attack against the family and the future generations that might have come from that marriage union. And since the violation was against the marriage union and the family integrity, David's consequences will have to take form in the same way. It will have to take form of, of trouble within his own family. So this is lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. You destroy the marriage, you destroy the family, I'm going to destroy your marriage, I'm going to destroy the family. God is perfectly just. So once David is exposed, he confesses. Again, it's a sad situation because he confesses only after he's found out. He is forced by God and by the mercy of God, he is forced through the prophet Nathan to face his lawlessness and his crime. And once he's found out, once he realizes he's the man, Nathan then delivers a surprising statement. In verse 13 we read this, And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. I've sinned against the Lord. He finally owns it. I, it's mine. I own it. I confess it. It's mine. No excuses. It's mine. But Nathan says this, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. You see, David knew that this was a death sentence. He knew in the back of his mind, he, he knew he was finished. He was done as king, as, as a human being walking on the face of the earth. He was, or at least he should have been executed. And yet Nathan says, no, you're not going to die. He knew that it was a capital offense. What he did was a capital crime. And initially he might have thought that this is what Nathan was going to tell him. Nathan was going to just lob off his head. And yet Nathan tells David something very much David didn't expect that he will not die. Moreover, Nathan further states that not only will David himself not be put to death, but his sin will be put away. As far as the east is from the west, he is forgiven. What an incredible... David must have been standing there thinking, what is going on? How merciful a Lord do I serve? And yet I betrayed that mercy. How gracious is my God, and yet I, I rebelled against that grace, thinking that I could do anything because of that grace. That I could sin so that grace might abound, and no, no, no. That's not how it works, David. So Nathan states that not only will David himself not be put to death, but his sin is going to be put away. This, however, is not the end of Nathan's indictment. I'm sure David would have loved to have it been done and then Nathan go to his own house and say, this is how it is. That's not how God works. Consider the particulars of the consequences and what must be the result because of David's acts of defiance against the Lord. Notice verse 14, how be it, he says, Nathan, because by this deed, notice the first problem, thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. And because of this, the child, you see, there has to be a death. There has to be justice. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you killed Uriah, there must be a death. Who will die? David will not die, but the child that is born unto thee shall surely die. Now, a number of things stand out here. 
David's rebellious act caused a blotch to be placed on God's honor by which his enemies would now capitalize upon. That's the testimony that we need to recognize must be held sacred. When you fail in your testimony, it gives occasion to the wicked to say, no, look at that so-called Christian, what a Christian he is. Christian in the name only. It causes the enemies to blaspheme. Whenever we sin, we give occasion to the enemies of the gospel to mock God and mock the church. Because our sin dishonors God, especially when it is finally exposed as a public lawless act. So rest assured, as it was with David's sin, ours too will be finally exposed if we do not confess and repent it before God. The better part of wisdom, of course, is don't sin. Sounds simple, not easy. Our infidelity strips the church of her testimony and its power. It strips the church of its testimony and its power. Sin causes the saint and the entire realm of Christianity to lose its standing as judges, which give the wicked free reign to do as much evil as possible without a valid rebuke. And if you go to rebuke the wicked, they'll say, well, who are you to rebuke me? You're a sinner yourself. There goes your power. There goes your testimony. Might as well stay home. So if we keep our sacred honor, then we will be more powerful. If we are to keep the sacred honor of God, we must do everything in our power to remain without reproach in our conduct. This does not mean only in our public life, but in our private life, and even more importantly, in our secret life. You know, everyone's got three lives. they got our the public life out there in the marketplace. Everybody loves you. Oh, because you're like the best Christian in the world, right? Everybody loves you. Then you got your private life, where you're home and your wife and your husband and your children, they see all your warts. But then there's that secret life where nobody knows. That's where the dirt is found. You've got to clean out that life because I could tell you the stench in that secret life starts to seep into your private life and then finally will come into the public life. And then you'll be a stench in the nose of the people that you see every single day of the week. You see... If we do not take seriously the mortification of our sinful lust in our secret life, which hides itself from immediate exposure, rest assured, when it finally is exposed, and I guarantee it will be exposed, it will mar the testimony of Christ and His church and cause the church to be lacking in its power and a laughing stock before the enemies of Christ. And I can only imagine the sorrow that was experienced by the entire nation of Israel when they finally learned the giant killer of Gath had done such an evil. How could it be? I don't know how they were able to wrap their minds around this. David was the prodigy. As a shepherd boy, he was the prodigy. He was the man that God ordained. What a terrible day. What a terrible day that must have been for the whole nation. So the question is, how do we deal with the lusts of the flesh before we enter into temptation by crossing the threshold of temptation into the clutches of debilitating destructive lawlessness. How do we do that? How do we do that? You know, 
to be tempted is not a sin. Christ was tempted in all ways. Temptation is not a sin. It's the entering in. It's the entering in of temptation that becomes sin. So what are some of the practical steps that we should employ when faced with temptation? And we're faced with temptation every day. Temptation is in us. Not only from without us, it's from within us. The Apostle Paul says, And my temptation, which was in my flesh, ye did not despise. Because it comes from within. So you can't ever get away from it. As long as you're in this world and in this body. So what are some of the practical steps? Well, as I said before, temptation itself is not sin. The cold, hard fact of the matter is that we will be tempted every day by one thing or another. It's part of our nature. The Apostle says, It was in my flesh. Nobody doesn't pass blame on anyone. He doesn't say, my mother made me do it, my father made me do it, my situation makes me sin, my brethren make me sin, the devil makes me sin, the stress, you know, I didn't get a good night's sleep last night, I have a lot of stress in my life, I have to, I have to have some sort of a release and it's sinful. No, he didn't, he didn't say that. He said, my temptation which was in my flesh. Notice he owned it. He owned his temptation as coming from within his fleshly nature. James is even more forthful when he says, Let no man say, and this is James 1, 13 and 14, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. The great Puritan theologian John Owen, he puts it this way, In dwelling sin always abides while we are in this world. Therefore, it is always to be mortified, killed. Sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, traveling, disquieting, but if left alone, it, if not continually mortified, it will bring forth great, cursive, scandalous, soul-destroying sin. So whenever we are tempted, we must consider the following before we submit to our fleshly lusts. Jeremiah Burroughs, another great Puritan, gives us these directives. Number one, he says, There is more evil in the least sin, if there is such a thing as a least sin, but there is more evil in the least sin than there is in the greatest affliction. You see, we usually succumb to our temptation because we don't want to fight against it, because that's very afflicting. It's tough. That's, a, that's hard work. He says this, secondly, sin is most opposite of God. You call yourself a Christian? Sin is opposite of Christianity. He says, quote, nothing is so directly opposite of God than sin. It wrongs him in his person. Because the workings of sin are always against him as enmity. Sin is walking contrary to God, fighting and striving against God and rising up against God. End quote. Thirdly, sin is the most opposite thing to man's good. Notice, when David sinned, it was opposite of anything that would be good for him. Sin is a destroyer. It's a deceiver. David was deceived that he could get away with his sin. 
He was self-deceived. And sin is a mocker because it seeks not only to seduce, but to corrupt. So when you're seduced, that seduction is really not saying, I want to seduce you. It's saying, I want to corrupt you. Because that's what sin does. It corrodes you. It corrupts you. Number four, sin is the most opposite thing to all good in general. It was the initial destroyer of the human race and has been its adversary ever since. Notice what Jeremiah Burroughs says. He says, quote, And it is sin that set the Lord of glory upon that ignominious cross of death and shame. Think about that. That's what put him on the cross. Number five, sin is the most poisonous evil of all other evils. It is the root of all wickedness. Sin is the object of God's hatred. And a man that lives in his sin is therefore an object of hatred before God. So if you are living in sin, I could tell you this now. Hear me well. If you are living in sin now, you are the object of God's hatred. And you'll say to yourself, well, but wait a minute, wait a minute. But uh, I'm saved. I made a profession of faith. I do good works. I'm saved. That's what David said. He said, I'm the king. I'm the king. I'm the giant killer of Gath. I, I, I've got all these glorious blessings and, and I could do these things and get away with it. No, no. That's when the presence of God is taken from you. You cannot live in sin. Notice what Burroughs says. He says, if there is so much evil in sin, how dreadful a thing is it for men or women, to delight in sin. It clearly shows the miserable condition of those whose hearts and lives are filled with sin. If you are in sin, you are, whether you know it or not, you are in a miserable condition. You are of men most miserable. Burroughs goes one step further in his indictment against sin and those that practice it without repentance. Of course, you know, that's the key. It's The key is own it and repent of it, confess it. But to live in it, that's different. Notice what he says. He says, If sin has no good in it, then all wicked men who live in the ways of sin are useless members of the world. You've got to love it. I mean, you've just got to love it. Useless members in the world? He says, They are burdens upon the earth. They are burdens upon the earth, unprofitable members who go on in the ways of sin, who neither have nor can have any good. In light of this statement, just think about it. Think of all the apostate churchmen, the politicians, the bureaucrats, and the leaders of men and nations that fall into the category of human uselessness. Do you want to be in that category? You see, these people are a blotch upon the human race who can do no good because they are no good. The worst thing you could say to someone is, you're no good. The language of sin is as old as the rebellion in the garden when Adam said that God should not reign. What he said was, I will satisfy my lusts. I will be as God. These are the contemplations that one must consider before entering into the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And what you're actually saying when you enter into a sinful act is actually you're saying, I hate God, I love death, I want to rebel, I want to be evil, and I really don't care who I hurt by my actions as long as I will have my lust satisfied. 
And since sin holds a deceptive sway over the man or the woman or the boy or the girl that has entered into temptation, they believe that they can get away with it, that they won't get caught. In the same way that David didn't believe that he wouldn't get caught. Hey, look, if David got caught, you're going to get caught. David believed that he couldn't get caught and then did. What does it say about us? So how many professing Christians, professors of Christ, how many professors of Christ believe that they can worship their lusts and at the same time worship God in good conscience? David did it. For the whole time, he was still going to church. He was still doing the commandments, doing the ordinances, still reigning as king. Without the constant battling and mortifying of sin, there can be no clear conscience before God, which means that a man that lives in sin without fighting against it is a man who is a slave to sin. And he has hardened his conscience. The Hebrew writer charges the people of God as to the extent and intensity of their battle against sin. Make no mistake about it. This is not an easy road. Sin, the battle against it, the battle against sin is not an easy path. Notice. Notice what the Hebrew writer says. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and following. Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Note the last verse, verse 4. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. See, no one wants to do that. We'd rather give way to sin. We don't want to fight against it. We don't want to resist. Notice what he says, striving against sin unto blood. So Nathan tells David that the child will surely die. Because murder carries with it a penalty of death. As the guilty party, David should have been executed because God is going to use David and his kingdom plan. The child must die in David's stead. God finds a substitute for David, a substitutionary atonement for David, his infant, innocent infant son. Herein, God once again impresses upon us the idea of a substitutionary death in almost the same way as when Abram slew the ram rather than his son Isaac. Only this time, it was a human life that was sacrificed for a human life. Now consider for a moment the guilt that David must have experienced knowing that his son's death, his baby boy, think about it, his baby boy, the death of his baby boy was a direct result of his sin. He had to live with that forever. David killed his own flesh and blood. His baby boy had to die. Think about your sin, how it's going to affect your children. It may not be murder and the death of your child, but it's going to affect them one way or another because that's how it works. This was an innocent child. This was an innocent child that was going to die as a result of David's lusting after a woman who was the wife of another man. Note how God deals with this sin. Verse 15. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare. Notice that Uriah's wife bare. Not David's wife now, but Uriah's wife. Still looking at Bathsheba as Uriah's wife. 
impressing upon David what he did. He violated that marriage. He violated that covenant. He violated that family. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. So God directly executes the death penalty by a fatal sickness upon the child as a result of David's sin. And this was not only a grief for David, it was also a chastisement and a deep sorrow for Bathsheba. She was as much to to blame as we've seen already as David, and God is dealing with her as well. Therefore, she too had to be afflicted for her sin. In other words, everybody pays. No one gets away with sin. God will not be mocked, and this is a lesson for all of us. And simply because the sentence against David and Bathsheba was not executed immediately at the time of their transgression, it didn't mean that it would not be dealt with later on. And since David's sin of adultery was not exposed immediately, he moved into greater sin by having Uriah the Hittite killed to cover his transgression. But now everything is found out. Everything's out in the open. Knowing the prophetic utterance of Nathan as to the fate of the child, David nevertheless prays for his infant son. And David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. That was the natural response. David would beg God to spare the child. That was a natural response. He understood God was merciful, and he was praying that God would be merciful on the child. And so he fasts and prays. He humbles himself by laying in the dirt because of his own wickedness. I think at this time, It finally sunk in. I think at this time, finally, David is taking full responsibility for what he had done. And it is a bitter pill that he must swallow. Now, verse 16 is very interesting. Notice in verse 16 and 17, David is beseeching God for the child. David fasts, goes in. And then, in verse 17, the elders of his house arise and go into him and raise him up from the earth. They want to encourage him. That's natural, too. But he refuses, and he would not eat bread with them. Now, my question here is, were these the same servants and elders that were complicit in getting Bathsheba to David's bed? Were these the same people that may have known what was going on? Remember, he bid his servants to go get her, bring it to me. Maybe they were complicit in this sin, saying nothing. They were taking place in it, but saying nothing. Certainly the adultery and the murder had had to be at least rumored after everything was said and done. Now, if these elders were ignorant of the whole affair, they were no longer ignorant now, since Nathan had exposed it. But if they were simply turning a blind eye to the whole affair, they become culpable to the entire situation by not rebuking David. And that was something that was odd too. They didn't even rebuke David. That's not right. It's somebody else's wife. Don't do it. So maybe they're trying to amend for their stupidity. So they try to comfort the king by taking him away from his sorrow and humiliation. But that's what he deserved. Now there are several reasons, I believe, for their behavior. First, it is likely that these elders did not want to see the king in such a distress, but for selfish reasons. Because if news got out to the enemies, the enemies of God, that the king was sitting in sackcloth and ashes, they might say, oh, the king is weak. He's weakened. And we may now be able to take advantage of the king's weakened, sorrowful state. And these elders might have thought that we are now in danger. Our security is being threatened because David is weak. And we don't want anyone to know about it. Secondly, it may be that these elders didn't think the penalty was, was great enough that David should be in such a state of sorrow. 
and destroyed by it. Maybe they say, well, that, 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 that's, that's, that's too much. That's too hard. Maybe, maybe it's not going to be as bad as that, David. After all, they believe, no, he's the king. Why should he be vexed in such a fashion? You know, he had other sons. You know, okay, you may lose that son. That son is, but you know, you got to get over it. Or thirdly, they obviously fail to recognize the depth of David's guilt, seeing he felt responsible for the death of his child. They had to realize this is good. You need to repent. You need to be in the dirt. So after seven days, the child dies. And it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. Now hearing of the child's death, the elders now are beside themselves. They're afraid to tell the king, thinking that he will finally go off the deep end, lose his mind. Seeing how distressed he was while the child was alive and languishing, now that the child is dead, what's going to happen now? And it came to pass, verse 18, on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself? In other words, we're going to lose our king. We're going to lose our edge against the enemies of Israel. We're going to lose our security if we tell him that the child is dead. So let's keep it from him. But David, very observant, sees that his servants are whispering behind his back and surmises that the child has died. And having the confirmation that the child is dead, David does something which comes as a complete surprise. Verse 19 and following, But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth, washed and anointed himself, changed his apparel, came into the house of the Lord and worshipped, and then came into his own house and ate. David's morning comes to an end. And his first act is contrition. His first act of contrition before God is he worships. Note the progression and the symbolism. First, David rises up from the earth. Of course, he had to get up, practically speaking. But what's here? What's the, where's the gospel? Well, possibly this was a symbol that he no longer will be earthly minded. In fact, I think he learns his lesson here. Secondly, he washes himself, symbolizing that his conscience now is clean. He's washed. He's forgiven. He's whiter than snow. He's washed from his sin by the atoning mercy of Christ. Thirdly, he anoints himself. And that's very significant because anointings were used to consecrate prophets, priests, and kings, all of which David was. Yet, once he remained in his sin, do you think he really was still the legitimate king of Israel, the prophet, the priest of God? No, he, at that point, was pretty much in exile. He's stripped. So he's re-anointing himself. This anointing is symbolic of his restoration to his offices as prophet, priest, and king, and his return to God's presence. And then he changes his clothes, symbolizing he's a new man. He's not the same lustful David. Not doing this again. He's a new man. The old adulterous David is gone and a newly clothed David appears. So having repudiated his earthliness and after his washing, anointing and changing of his clothes, as if to say, I am no longer that sinful man, he then appears before God once again, pure and restored, no longer lamenting or begging for the son's life, but pure and restored and worshiping God. 
His son has just died because of his actions, but here he's worshiping God. Worshiping God for his undying love, his mercy, his forgiveness, the fact that God is restoring him, teaching him a lesson that he'll never forget, and teaching us a lesson that we should never forget. And once he is restored to the union and communion with God, only then does he eat. He feeds on the word of God. It's as if he's eating anew a Passover type of communion meal to commemorate his restoration. David's behavior confuses, however, the men of his household. And so they ask, what thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was yet alive, but when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And this response seems to testify of the doctrinal ignorance and lack of faith by these individuals. They would rather fall apart after the death of a loved one rather than recognizing that through Christ their loved one is at peace with the Lord. And while there's often a mourning period, as rightly there should be a mourning period, David shows us that faith must supersede our mourning. Finally, it must supersede our mourning. Furthermore, these servants misunderstood David's faith. Perhaps even faith in general. You see, David knew that God would do what was right. That God could only do what was good and right. And therefore, David trusted the Lord with his whole heart. And while the child was alive, David held on to the hope that God would repent and restore the child. And so he prays and mourns. But after seeing that the Lord's will was that the child would die, David resolves himself to the will of God and then tells the servants and his elders this. Verse 22 and 3. While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me, that the child may live? Notice, he's trusting in whatever God does. He's going he's gonna to embrace it. But now, he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? This is the will of God. Can I bring him back again? No. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. This final statement shows David's deep theological understanding about life and death and hope and life everlasting. He will not come to me, but I will go to him. And the reason why I know that, because God is good. God is good. And God is a God of mercy. Adam Clark comments, he says, quote, This is one of the most solid grounds of consolation to surviving friends that they shall by and by be joined to them in a state of conscious existence. This doctrine has a very powerful tendency to alleviate the miseries of human life and reconcile us to the death of our most beloved friends. And were we to admit the contrary, grief in many cases would wear out its subject before it wore out itself. Even the heathens derive consolation from the reflection that they should meet their friends in a state of conscious existence, end quote. So having now been restored, restored to God, having the presence restored to him by God, David immediately goes to Bathsheba, who no doubt at this point is, is very sorrowful in order to comfort her. Now this shows a, a different side of David. If you remember, David, after... His affair with, with Bathsheba just sends her away. We read of no, no comforting, no gifts, no consolation. No. But now David goes to her and he comforts his wife. 
And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went in unto her and lay with her. And she bare a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. Notice, the death of a child, the birth of a child and the Lord loved him. God delivers to David and Bathsheba a son whom God loves. This was a blessing and again, it was a blessing undeserved and yet given by the merciful hand of God. And so, God wounds and God heals. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Faithful are the wounds of God upon this couple. But these were the wounds of a God who cared. As the psalmist later reflects, in Psalm 147, 3, He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Now verse 25 is a curious addition to the story's end. Although David names the child Solomon, Nathan is called to name the child. Even though the father named the child, Nathan is called to name the child. It was not customary for any prophet as a rule to name a child other than when the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ is the messenger of the Lord named John and the incarnate Jesus. And yet, here Nathan gives Solomon the name Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. So yes, the Lord loved him, and that's why we read the Lord loved him, because Nathan gave him the name Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. It is here where we are introduced to Solomon, the beloved son of God, the beloved son of David, typifying none other than the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We then find Joab, on the battlefield, proving once again that Israel is still a force to be reckoned with. But even though God has shown mercy, trouble is brewing in the house of the king right under the nose of David. And we will consider that next time when we return to our exposition on the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.